Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss Rishi Sunak's changes to financial support for businesses. And you ask us, what does the government's vote against free school meals really tell us? So we're fresh from watching Rishi Sunak announce changes to the job support scheme, which is the scheme that replaces the furlough in November. Stephen, you've been watching it closely. What are the changes? So the big changes are, firstly, a huge reduction in the amount that you have to put in as an employer to the new scheme. So there's a, in, in addition to the less generous furlough than is available if you are a closed business, and in addition to the operational grants that you get if you are in tier three, those operational grants have been extended into tier two, but also the kind of new furlough 2.0, which is nominally furlough one point the the original furlough 2.0 which was this thing where the government pays a third you work a third and the employer pays a third so you get paid 77 percent of your salary even though you're working only a third of your guaranteed hours now nominally the aim of that scheme originally was for businesses to be incentivized to keep all your people on part-time I think Rishi Sunak's not an idiot. No one who works at the Treasury is an idiot, right? The point of the original scheme was was a way of having gone, okay, I've lost the political battle to not do any of this, but I'm going to do this in a way which means it's not going to be claimed by a great number of people, right? What he's done now has tweaked the scheme in a way which means it actually will do what it purports to say on the tin because employers will only have to pay 5%. Hmm. So it makes it much easier to retain part-time workers in tier two. In addition, the grants have been extended to everywhere in tier two. But I think in some ways, right, although obviously these are like huge concessions, you know, the product of a kind of like three-pronged defeat for Rishi Sunak, right? The, the first being nervous conservative MPs in marginals. The second being the Metro mayors, of whom Andy Burnham has been like the most vocal and articulate. Of course, Andy Street's also been a big problem. And part of Andy Burnham's big political skill in this has been the way that he has sort of brought in and weaponized the fact that the other Metro mayors have been seen from the same hymn sheet as him. And of course, an internal cabinet defeat in the, you know, like broadly, 
one of the things that's been going on in the last 48 hours is an argument over spending reviews. And this is very much the kind of like, well, we don't care how you feel about the debt. You need to, to spend more money on this. A defeat by the official Labour front bench. And Annalise Dodd's got to do her, her victory lap in Parliament, which I think she did um, very well in what I think is part and away the best parliamentary performance I've I've seen from her. And from a fourth group, who is important, but I've forgotten what, why they, who they were. But the really important policy implication is that in order to prevent Andy Burnham standing up and going, we've been in tier two for, for weeks, and you only noticed when London and Greater Birmingham basically went into it. Uh, by the way, every time I've said this, people in Greater Birmingham have got in touch saying, we've been in tier two since September. I, I hate to be the one to break it to you, but you haven't. You have been able to go to hospitality industries for the last month. So I told someone this and they said, oh, oh, that's a bit upsetting. I was like, yeah, sorry. But <laughs> but because because of that retroactivity, hmm. seeing as it seems to be unlikely that Rishi Sunak will be able to avoid doing more of this stuff, the precedent he's now set, thanks to Andy Burnham's sort of energetic lobbying, is that um, when you do this, you have to do it retroactively. So mm-hmm. those are kind of the significant measures in terms of the policy and the politics of it, I think. What do you think this means for Rishi Sunak's reputation? There's been a lot of commentary, hasn't there, about how he's had to come and tweak his economic plans, you know, four times in as many months. And does it make him look weak if the opposition are calling for changes? The opposition either, you know, across the dispatch box or or in the form of figures like Andy Burnham are calling for changes and then he looks like he's on the back foot. Or, you know, does it not really matter if the help is forthcoming and, and retroactive? Do people forget about that and just think, okay, good, we've got this help from the government? It's a bit like the argument about U-turns. Does it really matter if the U-turn is to something that that people want and is helpful? So I think one of the the interesting things about this announcement is how it plays into the Andy Burnham story that's been going on for the past 10 days or however long. A lot of these are concessions to things that Andy Burnham was arguing weeks ago that his area has been under the equivalent of tier two restrictions for months and it's only after all of these negotiations that actually more support is going to be offered for businesses in that situation and it's going to be offered retrospectively which may not help all of the businesses in Manchester and the surrounding area which have maybe had to close anyway without the support but it's a concession to the broader point and I think that the interesting question is basically how, how that's being read and being interpreted differently by different news outlets. Because on the one hand, that is Rishi Sunak conceding defeat a little bit after the negotiations end, but basically saying, yeah, fundamentally, these criticisms are right. I'm U-turning on this. And like Stephen was saying, Annalisa Dodd's basically making the same point that, you know, and she gets to do her victory lap that actually he had his winter economic plan and he had to change it before winter even began. But then on the other hand, it's being interpreted in some quarters as Rishi Sunak riding to the rescue, delivering the support and the deal that Boris Johnson refused to do. I've seen that from quite a few commentators and reporters it doesn't really seem to reflect the the reality of the power dynamics between number 10 and the Treasury. It makes, I don't think, any sense that Boris Johnson would be unwilling to give that support, but Rishi Sunak would retrospectively. But I, but I do sort of wonder how that's going to play out if people weirdly see this as a kind of victory for, for Rishi Sunak, that he gets to take credit for this in a way that Boris Johnson doesn't. 
And yeah, and, and then on the wider point about, you know, is Rishi Sunak damaged by having to bring in more and more policies, mm. eventually conceding that things he had already implemented aren't working and having to revise them again and again? I'm not really sure because he is he is still popular and I think people won't be following this in that much detail. I mean, it's, it's clearly better to do something late than to not do it at all. I think people will be divided. Some people will quite rightly think that this is far too late, that it didn't help the businesses who needed this months ago or the people who've lost their jobs. Loads of decisions will have been based on information support, you know, that didn't include these extra measures. So like the fact that some of the support can be retrospective is kind of beside the point for a lot of people. But I also think for loads of other people who don't really follow this, the headline will still be, you know, Rishi Sunak offers yet more money and you know, in his very kind of smooth style in the commons, talks about the billions that he's already given to support the economy. And people think that, you know, that there's probably nothing wrong with someone who listens and and keeps adapting and keeps moving. But I'm interested, what do the two of you think about what it means for the the sort of the Rishi Sunak politics? Well, so what I found fascinating about some of the reactions to it, right? I mean, in general, I find the, the reactions of a lot of political commentators to Rishi intriguing, right? And this is a man who was just bizarrely written off. As far as I can tell, I'm going to engage in a lot of, I feel every occasion on the podcast, I say, you know, one shouldn't speculate about other people's sources because you're usually wrong. But I'm going to do it anyway, because I'm feeling indulgent today. I think there were there was a lot of writing about how you know how much of a a puppet he was you know I've I've heard you know people suggesting things like oh you know yeah like about his rea- his relationship with Downing Street then I'm sorry just not really accurate and about how you know he was relatively inexperienced when I mean, it's like look this is someone who has been hailed by multiple people across the party as a future leader basically since day one right yeah in many ways it would be a bit like if saying something gordon brown had stopped being prime minister in 2009 and david Miliband had appointed ed balls and a bunch of people had gone who's this inexperienced economist who's only been elected four years ago they have no ideas of their own i think they have some ideas of their own and then he kind of you know did his like very polished very well delivered whatever it takes budget and it was like a bunch of those people went oh my god i can't believe that this great hope of the conservative party is is actually quite impressive and presents well and then there's been a kind of not even so much a kind of weird overcompensation, but like we've gone from having a situation where people cover one fictional Rishi Sunak to where they cover another fictional Rishi Sunak. Because exactly as you say, Alba, right, this U-turn was not, despite the way some people seem to be tweeting and writing about it, about Rishi Sunak riding to the rescue and doing something Downing Street didn't want. This, yeah, bluntly is about Downing Street going look, mate, we've we've heard enough of your opinions about how debt is bad. Yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, like we go out and fix this problem, essentially, right? Like, And yeah, and like the body language of like Boris doing the whole like, you know, like being as close as you can be on this thing. And I just also think like, if you watch how peevish some of the statements were, right? he is worried about the debt and does think that this is like an era rather than a moment. And that is why, yeah, like when people keep going, oh, you know, isn't it funny that there's this opt-out which means you can stay open? No, all of that was about reducing the amount of money they had to pay. So I think basically the the interesting thing is you look at the polls and they all basically say the same thing, which is 
two parties roughly level and occasionally margin of error spits out something and causes people to get excited one way or the other. Keir Starmer ahead of Boris Johnson on, you know, best PM, leadership, all of that kind of stuff in most polls. And Rishi Sunak sort of floating above everyone else. Mm -hmm. But his numbers are declining. Now, the question I have is, is that because they're declining because ultimately, like, the Tory brand is declining and we're kind of essentially kind of seeing, like, we're basically seeing the decline of, do you like Conservative Chancellor? No, no, I don't like those people. They're messing things up. Rishi Sunak. And they're like, oh, but he's so lovely. Is the decline actually about the Tories and his ratings are fine? Or is it also about the fact that... Because every single time that he's forced into something or he does something slightly partially because of what he wants, someone does lose their job, as you say, right? There are there are jobs that have been lost as a result of the delay. Is it just that the people who lose their jobs are like, yeah, do you know who I don't like? Rishi Sunak. That is, I think, kind of the big question. I kind of think that, that ultimately eventually the political the politics always catches up with the policy yeah and and this this weird narrative of like which yeah i can't believe that if you said at the start of this week the thing you'll be saying is like look actually guys if you if you want to talk about a conservative riding to the rescue in the boris johnson rishi sunak relationship it, it certainly wasn't rishi sunak but nonetheless i am right and i just think that the policy does always catch up with the politics uh, but yeah Anish, what, what do you think yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the on the big question about what it means for his reputation because it's difficult to tell. I don't think that I don't think that anyone could tell you comprehensively what what was happening in terms of the public's opinion of him at the moment because I was struck for quite a long time actually until fairly recently I was struck by the people who I'd interview for various pieces mainly about the sort of social and economic impact of of coronavirus on sort of ordinary people's lives. I was always surprised because people would would speak very admiringly of Rishi Sunak, even if they were sort of horrified that the government was reopening the economy or wasn't planning on having another nationwide lockdown or thought that they were far too late to the restrictions and local lockdowns this time round. And it always felt a bit bit jarring knowing that, you know, well, this is the person who's been pushing to try and reopen things and try and sort of claw back some of the financial help that was given at the beginning of the crisis. So, you know, you had that sort of odd contradiction there where Rishi Sunak was seen as the sort of competent and generous one who always came out at, at the at a time of crisis to announce something more to help people through, whereas Boris Johnson is seen as this villain who hasn't taken the crisis seriously and is sort of constantly struggling to, to catch up or, or implement anything in a timely non-chaotic way because like you say Stephen that's not the actual picture of of where the politics lie behind the scenes but I do think that that's changing I went to um, a restaurant recently which is run by a restaurant owner who I've spoken to sort of on and off throughout this crisis and he you know was finally saying because of the various decisions that have been made up since since the end of summer that Rishi Sunak doesn't understand hospitality. He doesn't understand how to keep businesses alive through a lockdown. And he was really condemning him as a politician. And he hadn't done that. He hadn't done that before. And I've I've got that sort of feeling that it's probably the sort of government brand that that is dragging him down rather than his own performance. But I think you're right. I do think that the politics is catching up with with the policy, and that and sort of the penny is very slowly dropping. That this is the man who you know who told everyone and and paid everyone <laughs> to go to restaurants over the summer, didn't want a repeat of the furlough. People have lost their jobs already because of that. 
people are very worried about the idea of not having the £20 uplift in universal credit continued beyond next April. Some of that stuff is now being pinned on Rishi Sunak, not just chaotic government under Boris Johnson. And I do think that one of the main drivers of the politics eventually catching up with Rishi Sunak in a way that I think it will, even if it isn't quite yet, is Andy Burnham. I know I'm making every answer about Andy Burnham. I will stop doing that, but not not today. And in a way that other Labour figures haven't done as successfully, not necessarily because they're doing anything wrong, but they just haven't been as well placed as Andy Burnham to make a kind of boots on the ground argument representing a particular, a very sort of visible, easy to imagine group of people, business owners in Manchester and the surrounding area. I think that he has just been able to advance a more sort of fundamental critique of Rishi Sunak and the fundamental problem of having a strategy of tighter restrictions, which are simultaneously not tight enough to change the trajectory of the virus. And aren't going to be underpinned by sufficient economic support for people to get through it without a huge amount of hardship. I think that before that wasn't coming through quite so much, not necessarily as a criticism of Annalisa Dodds or the Shadow Treasury team, but just because still the main Labour figure that we see is Keir Starmer and he is still, I feel like he hasn't been advancing that entire argument as effectively and that he sort of began to do it with the national circuit breaker. But before then, it was sort of less clear, whereas the fundamental problem that like Rishi Sunak is holding things back by wanting to get the debt down at a point where clearly that, you know, doesn't cohere with a policy of needing ever tighter restrictions to get the virus under control. So I think Andy Burnham has probably moved the dial slightly on the on the consensus around Rishi Sunak as you both say like I don't think it has completely caught up with him already because Boris Johnson is the face of this government and when they see confusion or they feel sort of economic hurt he'll be the person who who takes the hit but I think as that trickles down and even with this you know despite the kind of weird interpretations of this intervention from Rishi Sunak today as some kind of riding to the rescue thing I think the fundamental point that he's conceding the argument to the Labour Party that a lot of the stuff he's been doing hasn't worked and that he's needed to do more I think that, that I think that will trickle through and in the months that follow, I'm sure that there are just plenty of people on the ground who know that this delay has really has hurt them personally. And we'll hear more of those stories and see the further impact in in the weeks and months ahead. Yeah, I think that the interesting thing about, as you say, like the, you know, the, the Andy Burnham effect is the, sorry, this is even by my standards, this is going to be a deeply nerdy point, but like it is, it is, it is proof that actually, and, and local councils do great, and there are lots of really good, you know, Sean Fielding, brilliant council leader in Oldham, yeah, like there, are, there are lots of, and indeed Jim McMahon now shadow transport secretary. There are lots of, and in, this is also true, you know, across across the house, right? Actually, there are lots of really interesting things about rewilding than, than various Conservative council council leaders are doing, but the argument for Metro mayors. And the reason why George Osborne drove forward having them in, yeah, with some quite sharp local opposition in some cases, is that when you have a face and a name and a kind of who do I call for Manchester, you get someone who can advocate mm. for your city region in a different way. 
And the problem that I think Labour at Westminster have had is that, as you say, like the the only person we ever really write about is Keir Starmer. When Keir's on the attack, he's attacking Boris, right? Mm-hmm. But mm. what Andy's able to, and obviously, like Annalise Dodds attacks Rishi Sunak every week, but who cares? She's the shadow chancellor. <sighs> Meh. It's the same reason Osborne, though, like, it's not like he actually was particularly good at scoring runs against Gordon Brown. The difference is, is Cameron knew that he was not going to face Tony Blair in an election. He was going to face Gordon Brown. So his arguments against Blair were all arguments against Brown. And what I think Andy Burnham's been able to do, and he's done very effectively, is to just go, well, I'm just going to essentially go over and tackle that person. You know, and also, right, mm-hmm. his analysis is correct. If Boris Johnson were his chancellor as well as his prime minister, I mean, we would have other operational problems. But yeah, the the money the money would be flowing freely, right? Like, the, 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 you know, Andy Burnham is entirely correct to say, as he said in that interview with you, Alva, the problem is the chancellor. But I think that has shown both the kind of policy benefit than than regions get from having metro mayors, but also when you are an opposition party and you control a metro mayor, mayoralty at the opposition and you have a politician. I, I'm not blind to some of Andy's shortcomings, but I think in terms of his undoubted strengths, a metro mayoralty is, is, is almost laboratory designed to bring the best out of him. And when you have a politician of his quality able to do that, that's when you start to be able to be like, actually, the problem is that dude over there. Mm. And it's an example, I think, of the Labour strategy going forward in action that Every Labour politician under the sun has backed Andy Burnham on this. I mean, there must be, I haven't spoken to any, there must be some people who were privately a little bit worried about those delays and the number of people in hospitals in Manchester, which were going down slightly, but still, you know, the the fact that cases are very high in Manchester and they weren't bringing in higher restrictions as a result of those delays. But I haven't spoken to any of them. I don't know if they exist, even though they probably do. But basically, publicly, Everyone has rode in behind Andy Burnham from people on the right of the party, Keir Starmer, Jeremy Corbyn, Len McCluskey. It is exactly an example of the type of argument about ordinary people in their lives and the everyday struggles that they face that Labour wants to centre the next election around. It is actually the kind of argument that can unite the different wings of the Labour Party and this kind of, I think, you know, Annalisa Dodds, when she first became Chancellor and I interviewed her for the New Statesman, that was exactly what she was saying, that like she sees her role as basically being a conduit for the concerns of, of ordinary people to just sort of be like an ear to the ground and reflecting and echoing and amplifying those concerns to government. That's what, you know, everyone in the, in the Labour Party aspires to do but they aren't necessarily given the right platform or positioning or they're just not always in the right context to do it but you know if you're Andy Burnham in a cagoule you know standing outside Manchester Library with these big eyes making really reasonable (laughs) arguments about what is happening to your community in a way that you know everyone can understand that is like with the free school meals issue like those are clearly the kinds of arguments where Labour feels most comfortable and where you can it you know it's I think a rare example of an issue that could potentially unite that diverse voter coalition that they're looking for in 2024 like there are so many issues where it's hard to imagine it and there are so many times when the political debate doesn't seem to suit the Labour agenda but this one just absolutely was you know lots of people who wouldn't necessarily have loved Andy Burnham 
a few years ago, all rowing in behind him. Yeah, I also think what what makes Andy Burnham and his intervention so poignant is the fact that there was this whole narrative built by the Conservative Party itself, which, you know, sort of manifested itself in the election result, that traditionally Labour-supporting areas were fed up with being taken for granted by their local politicians and were interested in the offer from the Conservative Party under Boris Johnson. And because of the way that the the election played out, the manifesto put forward by Boris Johnson and his levelling up agenda was sort of vindicated by, by the way that people voted. And what I think is really interesting is that this has so viscerally run counter to that narrative, undermined that rhetoric, and sort of put the credulous commentators who who really bought into this idea on the back foot. And, you know, obviously we'll, we'll see how, how things play out before another election. But I do, I do think that, that it shows the shallowness of the suggestion that the Conservative Party was going to empower local communities and stop power flowing from, from Whitehall, which is, which is a direct quote from the manifesto. Because I don't understand how a government that was serious about that levelling up agenda and serious about supporting its MPs in the, in the seats that it that it newly won could allow this showdown with Andy Burnham ever to happen? That's something that Andy Burnham said in my interview with him as well, that, I mean, he he's a sensible enough political operator not to completely say that he invented levelling up, but that's basically what he meant, that he feels like he and colleagues like Steve Rotherham mm. and Andy Street, the Conservative Mayor of the West Midlands that you mentioned, Stephen, he basically thinks that, that they invented the levelling up agenda and that's been their case for ages. The government co-opted it for the 2019 election campaign and now Andy Burnham is playing them at their own game and I think winning. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. You Ask Us. Oh, very good, Stephen. Yeah, I've been chastened by the number of people who say I sound like I'm doing a... I mean, actually, the the worst was an MP who WhatsApped me being like, Conservative MP was just like, they were like, Rishi's tone and this is almost almost has the same vibe of I'm doing this, but I don't want to, as you doing the You Ask Us does. And I was just like, God, I hope I don't sound like that. That is such a good analysis. Yeah, it is. (laughs) We are Boris making you say it. (laughs) 
<laughs> Look, I make no apologies for changing <laughs> changing my mind in changing circumstances. Unlike You're doing whatever opposite. it takes to sound yeah, enthusiastic. Yeah, exactly. I'm doing whatever it takes. But, but <laughs> what, is, what, is, what is the question we're being asked? So unfortunately, the questioner has not revealed themselves, but uh, it's, you've described before on the podcast how looking at parliamentary votes out of context can be misleading, but I'm struggling to figure out what context makes the government position on last night's free school meals vote make sense. Can you shine any light on their plan here? Is there a plan? So this refers to the the opposition day vote that Labour forced about free school meals over the holidays. So the Conservatives voted that down. And obviously this has been a, a politically huge issue throughout summer because it was it was something that Marcus Rashford campaigned for and, and came into action. Yeah, I mean, I think so. In terms of like the the voting record stuff, which was Alvis talked about a lot, very sort of eloquently. This is a really poor example of of, of the reason why they voted against it is that this is still a party of deficit hawkers, hawks, and small state people who yeah you know, who think that if you yeah you know, if you do this in the pandemic, you ain't going to be able to justify not doing it forever, right? Like the the vote is the justification. The reason why voting record stuff is is mostly unhelpful, and I'd be interested to know Albert, if, what what you think of this is that like, most MPs in the United Kingdom don't rebel very often. Like even Jeremy Corbyn, like the most rebellious Labour MP ever, whose whose rebelliousness allowed him to become leader of the polit- of a political party in this kind of future, only rebelled on one vote in every four in his most rebellious Parliament, which would broadly make him like the most reliable US state senator. It's it's not particularly useful because broadly this what, what voting record analysis mostly shows you is yep that is a Labour MP or yes that is a Conservative. It doesn't actually empower citizens to know, for example, if you are campaigning about the right to die, is your MP aligned with you on that kind of thing? And then there are lots of things where you know someone's a teller or they've been ill or where it just where just broadly there are so many reasons to vote yes or no to something then it doesn't actually really help people beyond like identifying the party of the MP in question, which is helpful if it's a general election, but it's not helpful in terms of people being active citizens who are able to effectively lobby and communicate either with their local MP or with local charities or whatever. And that is essentially my problem with voting records as they are often used in British politics at the present time. Yeah, and I feel like with the the free school meals vote yesterday, this isn't a perfect example of it, I suppose, because the Conservatives did eventually concede on that over the summer. But I think, yeah, the problem with, with voting records and looking at how MPs vote is, as you say, like MPs don't tend to rebel very much. They just take the party line and on this, like with so many other things, like if MPs were going to vote to extend free school meals over the half-term break and for Christmas, they would be doing so because the government had already accepted that that should be the policy. And so it wouldn't be Labour proposing it. The government would be proposing it. That I think probably the stuff around Brexit and the levels of Tory rebellion against Theresa May's various Brexit deals maybe misrepresents or has slightly skewed the picture that people have of how rebellious MPs are. But there are just so many examples where if your party as a whole in Parliament isn't going to go for it, you probably can't. And um, I mean, clearly the free school meals thing is 
very bad optics for the Conservative Party. And I think, you know, it's difficult to to make a, a moral case for voting it down. But even beyond the kind of ideological reasons that Stephen was outlining, I think there's just the point that they didn't vote for it because it's not in their plan for government. It's not their policy. The government has the things it's doing on, well, maybe not enough, but, you know, it has the things it's doing on child poverty, on support for families over the pandemic. And so from their perspective, they're not going to vote for some random Labour policy to just give them a victory. And I think it's smart from the Labour Party because as well as being the right thing to do, it is very smart politics to to lay down emotion like that. But... I mean, yeah, I think that it would be a rare thing for conservatives to to rebel in sufficient numbers to vote for that kind of thing. And there are so many examples on voting records where, like, for example, with the domestic abuse bill, there was an amendment put forward by the Labour Party to, I can't remember the details of it, but it was basically to allow more provisions for migrant women who were survivors of domestic abuse to access support. And there was a really, really thoughtful debate on the domestic abuse bill as a whole. And the only real issue of contention was over support from migrant women. And the government had already been clear that they, their plan was that this was an unresolved area and that they were going to, there was a sort of a paper or, or a board set up to look into the exact provisions that they would bring in at a later date. So the, the labor motion, although it was, you know, potentially a good idea because I mean there there is an urgent need to provide support to migrant women in, in that situation but the labor motion was also there to kind of play politics slightly because the government and conservative MPs weren't going to vote for it the government was already planning mm-hmm. to look into it further and had a board to look into it and so I saw on Twitter the following day lots of people saying well why did you vote against the domestic abuse bill to various conservative MPs. Obviously, everyone voted for the domestic abuse bill in the end, conservative and labor, and it passed overwhelmingly. And it was a really a great and landmark piece of legislation. They just didn't vote for that amendment because they had other plans for it. And you can still make a criticism of that, but it's just an example of how, if you look that up, you will see that, I mean, I think sometimes it isn't even clear that you're talking about them voting down an amendment rather than voting down the entire motion and it just mm. means that people think that Matt Hancock like didn't didn't vote in favor of the domestic abuse bill which is just completely incorrect and so yeah the, the stuff on voting records I mean there's a lot of politics to it and you can't blame the various parties for for playing that game in a way that makes the opposing one look bad but it's not really a fundamental judge of the politics of of the opposing party. The DV thing is is a sort of great example right and then like the reason why I think then that vote is important and tells us something about the political parties is because it's about the treatment of migrants and refugees, which if you are trying to lobby your MP or you're campaigning for better treatment for, you know, so let's say there are, you know, people who are seeking asylum who are living in your constituency and you want to campaign for them to be able to work because one of the more ridiculous sort of laws we have is is this situation where, we just make people wait for ages without enough to really to live live on. They can't engage in the local economy, so they have a terrible time, and it's also just really bad for the area as a whole. 
and my kind of objection to websites like they work for you is because up until the Corbyn era, so many of the um, really bad, yeah, the kind of yeah, 2014 and the 20, the 2014 act, yeah, were, you know, people whipped to abstain or, or, or to vote for various things. You just look at that and you're like, oh, well, you're all the same on this thing. So you then go like, oh, well, yeah, why bother? Or I can just lobby these two parties in the same way. Or for me, I always think like the uselessness of this in terms of allowing people to make informed decisions in terms of how they write to and lobby their MPs comes out whenever there's an internal party leadership election. Because someone will basically go, oh, I'm not an X, but I prefer Y. And then someone goes, oh, but look at their voting record. They're the same old Labour or, oh, look, they're like a typical Tory. Well, I'm sorry, if you don't understand why from a like political outcomes effect, there was a difference between the five candidates. Why don't you tell that to Diffid? Oh, wait, you can't. It was scrapped by Boris Johnson, which would not have happened if Jeremy Hunt or Rory Stewart had become Conservative leader, or indeed, Sadie Javid probably, right? There is, and there is no bit in the voting records of any of those candidates that can tell you that. There are, however, things in terms of their interventions in the House of Commons and the things they've said in Westminster Hall debates that can tell you that. And I don't think it's reasonable to expect the average citizen to be across that. But I think it is reasonable to expect that instead of having a situation where we have like, okay, a free product, but a product which basically purports to do that work for people, but actually doesn't do that work for people, I think is deeply harmful to people's ability to to make change happen in their community and in the country. Hmm. Just a final thing to add to that is that obviously the fact that they're all voting in the same way doesn't mean that the end result of these MPs having different opinions on the thing is just cancelled out. The point is that those differences of opinion aren't really going to manifest themselves in how MPs vote very often, but it will manifest itself in the politics that happens before the votes. Because to use the example of the domestic abuse bill again, the amendment on migrant women was kind of playing politics, even though it was important and Labour would argue that it was necessary because, you know, it embarrassed the Conservatives by having to vote it down. Where the political victories came was all the lobbying that happened behind the scenes between the introduction of that bill in Parliament and its final manifestation. So there were plenty of other things where Labour looked at that bill as it came before Parliament and they said, hang on, there aren't enough protections for children in this or there isn't you know, enough economic support in this area or in this area. And on those issues, behind the scenes, the government did work with Labour on it and they did accept those criticisms and basically just took them all on and brought them all on as their own amendments. And so... Labour didn't get a big sing-song victory on that because that was sort of cross-party working. But it did mean that the the Labour figures who cared about those issues did secure more support, particularly for children, in that final bill. And that was voted on by the Conservatives. So in a way, to get the meaningful change, it isn't about laying down the controversial motion in Parliament. It's about getting it to a stage before that where the government is introducing it itself because it has accepted the argument. No, I, I, I do agree with what, what you're both saying about this. And then to bring it back to the, the vote yesterday on the free school meals, I think there's it is difficult for you know someone who's not paying attention to every twist and turn of politics to work out sometimes from coverage what's actually going on. Because with opposition day motions, they're not binding. So the government hasn't actually voted in a sort of material way to stop children having 
free school meals over the next few holidays, for example. But, you know, because Labour have brought that as, as a motion, it shows their own direction of travel and it. And it's also a way of trying to smoke out any Conservatives who really can't bring themselves to even vote against the principle. And you, you saw that happening with a Conservative MP over that vote, Caroline Ansel, who resigned her government job because she wanted not to oppose the motion. So, you know, it does work in terms of politics. But again, I don't think it actually represents to voters you know, the true intentions of legislators on on some issues. And, you know, I've had Conservatives describe Opposition Day motions to me as sort of virtue signalling and things that they would rather not have to, you know, stand up and support just because it's being put on the table to make them look bad, if you see what I mean. And I'm sure it will be the the other way round as well if we had a Labour government and, and Conservative MPs were were bringing motions that it, that were making things difficult for, for, for Labour MPs. So, you know, it, it's a good device and it's clever and it also it, it signals to voters what your party is about and what your principles are and what you're trying to fight for and, and sort of put, make the government uncomfortable about. But it doesn't represent a true picture. I feel I have to maximise the one time that I, I feel I'm like in the, the leftmost position on the podcast. Yeah, the thing is, is I do think it is revealing on this kind of thing because this is essentially like... Yeah, this vote is kind of the core of the political divide, right? Whose fault is it? Yeah, so whose responsibility is it if you have children going hungry? Now, of course, I have like a very wonkish kind of, well, actually, the solution to this in most cases is just to give people more money. I don't really like the kind of politics of vouchers and yeah like there's a great Bridget Phillipson piece about fuel poverty from a couple of years ago and she wrote for the NS website that essentially encapsulates pretty much all of my thinking on this issue but nonetheless right this doesn't give us a partial effect to view people's politics the thing is the problem with like voting record discourse in a United Kingdom context is actually what what none of these things tell you is like Caroline Ansell deciding that on a non-binding motion she feels Mm. strongly enough about this to quit the government is Mm. actually a hugely useful bit of information to you if you're a local campaigner whereas if you go on like okay they didn't hold the vote last time but if you if you went on that and then went on some kind of like website that vote is counted exactly the same as a rebellion on that issue or yeah like yeah kind of yeah kind of on something where it's like a lot where you have a lot less skin in the game so that kind of is the other problem right these a lot of the kind of voting stuff doesn't even give people that the sort of necessary information to go oh this person must be really into this thing yeah maybe they mm. are someone to get a campaign on and on the dv stuff right like there is nothing on any of these websites that tells you why like laura farris the new mp for newbury who's been you know a hugely effective advocate particularly for such a new mp on some of the changes in the domestic violence bill well there's still nothing on her voting record that can tell you any of that and i think that to me is the is the central problem with them in that they ought to be things that arm you to to do things like that whereas mostly they're just like broadly they are only useful in a kind of is this a lib dem that you a someone who usually votes conservative or labor depending on the condition can stomach voting tactically for yn is really the only thing they're ever actually any use for in their current form you've been listening to the new statesman podcast with me anusha kellyan and my colleagues alva ray and stephen bush We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.